Well, Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas. Oh, man. It's kind of interesting to imagine how everyone might be feeling this morning. Joyful, just plain full, tired, happy, all of the above. And we're just glad you're here. Thank you for being with us to sit under and feast upon, I hope, the Word of God to us as the Spirit, again, works in and through the Word to make it a living letter to connect you and me, you by name, and wherever you are at this morning, to Christ. Because Christ is born, there is hope in this world. Um, There may be a whole host of canceled flights, And my heart is really breaking for people who have been putting this off for two years, and this was the moment. Uh, But Jesus and his promises cannot, they can't ever be canceled. (laughs) No matter what comes, there is hope, there is purpose for us, right? So your purpose in life and mine is more than just power and pleasure, having fun, making a lot of money, looking good, doing a bunch of good things, building up your little mini kingdom, By the way, not wrong to do some of those things. Those can be good things. But we have a purpose in Christ to be known by the true and living God, to know and love one another, and to love the world, to love Santa Fe, especially the hard parts of Santa Fe, the stuff that, you know, you pass by and you look and you turn your head in frustration. And there's peace. There is peace for you this morning, whatever you've got going on. I mean, that's an audacious claim, by the way. I better have something to stand on that can back that up that's a little bit bigger than, you know, words on a page. There's peace for you and for me. Because this is God's heart for you on this Lord's Day, the last Sunday of 2021, to gather you and to speak tenderly to you from his word and to remind you that there's peace in a world that so often lacks peace in our own souls, which are so often swayed like a ship on the high seas, tossed about by the waves, there's peace. So we come to verse 9 in the Beatitudes this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons, and let's just add daughters, they shall be called sons of God. Here is the promise of peace. Blessed, that is living and breathing, and having their being in the reality of the kingdom. Blessed are the ones who go about having peace and making peace. They will be known as the royal family. They will be known as the ones who are the sons and daughters of the Most High. It's simple, really. I I think God revels in the simple. He had a simple family that gave birth in a very simple and unknown place to a simple and beautiful baby boy. God came to bring a simple word to us, that is, peace. Again, this is the heart of God the Father for his sons and daughters by the power of his Holy Spirit. That actually he sent Jesus into the world to get close to you. Is that hard to hear? Is that, you know? Does that make you kind of... uh, Yes, glory, power, and majesty, and dominion forever and ever. God who is sovereign, and there isn't an atom or a quark or a molecule or, you know, a single photon that's going to hit this new telescope we just sent up into space over which he does not declare it is mine. And yet that same sovereign God, his heart for his children is to get close to you. 
Now, I've been thinking about this a little bit because our, our brother Jonah's back from seminary, and, you know, I, of course, remember being in seminary, and, and, and when, you're, when you're studying and learning and beginning your career, your vocation, whatever it might be, whatever kind of learning it is, there's sort of this traceable bell curve, right? When you start off, you kind of, you know, you don't really know much. It's just kind of simple. Then, of course, you get a couple years in, a couple classes in, and you are here to let the world know that you have now arrived and you know everything. And by the end, because of suffering and sanctification and the mercy of God to humble us, you, you kind of come to the end of that bell curve. And, and what is it? It's, it's a full circle. You actually know so much more, but you know that what you really know is just the simple stuff. A friend sent me a, a meme this week that sort of explained this in light of Christmas. Again, if you can imagine a bell curve, someone on the left side just recently come to faith, doesn't really know much, you know, about theology or the Bible or big words or Latin or five syllables. And they might say something simple about Christmas like this, you know, the God of the universe became a wiggling little baby in a manger in order to get close to me. And then, of course, you learn a few things, you go through a few challenging times, and your response, you know, at peak know-it-all might be the following. Actually, it was the second person of the Trinity who took on a perfect human nature, first and foremost, to bring glory to the triune God and the redemption of a completely unworthy people upon whom the triune God had decreed mercy and grace in eternity past. That's not even close to getting to you. <laughs> it's like, okay, calm down. But then... You know, on the end of the bell curve, after you've walked with the Lord for a good bit of time, you kind of get that, that Obi-Wan thing going on, and you're full circle back to the God of the universe became a wiggling baby in order to get close to me. There's a famous uh, a quote from one of the great theologians of the 20th century, German theologian, who wrote more words down than I'll probably ever speak in my life, named Karl Barth. And one of his PhD students came to him, you know, and this guy's smarter than smart, top of his class, knows 28 languages, and said, Dr. Bart, Dr. Bart, tell me, tell me, what is the most important, deep, intricate, erudite, theological lesson that I can learn from you during my time as a PhD student? He stepped back and he thought, and he looked this student right in the eye and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Simple. Simple peace. Not simplistic. Oh, the rabbit hole goes deep. And we should study those things and learn all those words. But at the end of the day, simple peace as a gift from God to us, his children. And how we, I mean, how we long for peace in this world. I mean, don't you, don't I long for peace when you see the brokenness, the hurt, the pain, the injustice out there around you, maybe even within you? I had a stark reminder of that uh, just yesterday. As you might notice at the top of page 13, my name is the Reverend John Standridge. Hi, good to meet you. Got a call from John yesterday. He was supposed to preach this morning. Um, and I'm sure he had a really great sermon prepared on this text that he had, you know, over a week to work on. But unfortunately, and he's fine, he's fine, by the way, and everyone's fine, okay? So everyone's fine and he's fine, but he had a pretty direct contact to someone who was COVID positive, 
And so he and I talked and prayed, and at 6.30 last night, decided to pull the trigger on, it would be me this morning preaching, which either means this will be my shortest sermon ever or my longest. I don't know. To be continued. But of course, we wanted to, you know, err on the side of caution as I'm up here like a super soaker, you know, spraying you all with droplets. And so that was me last night, hanging out with my friends, with my neighbors, enjoyment, peace, and then at 6.30 on a Saturday, buckle up. It's a reminder, a small reminder, but a reminder nonetheless that our world is not yet at peace. We don't have the garden back. It's now the kingdom coming, but not yet the kingdom consummated. That's where we live in this tension between two worlds. So we're longing for the garden. We're longing for that, that Hebrew word for peace, shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. And it carries with it, linguistically, uh, you know, a pregnancy that our word for peace just sort of doesn't have. It's deep in its meaning. Shalom isn't just, oh, okay, I've got my life in order, everything's under control, and no one's mad at me right now. Whew, shalom. I don't feel any personal subjective inner anxiety in this moment right now. Ah, shalom. No, the Hebrew word for shalom is this whole world and this whole cosmos is going somewhere, and it's going back even more glorious to where it started, and that is Peace on earth, goodwill to men, no tears, no brokenness, no pain, no health issues, no cancer, no need, no poverty, no deprivation, none of it. And that's the shalom and the peace that we long for. Again, not just a little bit of life management, because you're, you're okay at that. And you've done that, and you know what that's like. And right around the time that you've got your 15 spinning plates, and you can manage to get all 15 of them spinning just okay... Buckle up, because a 16th plate is coming in from someone you know like a Frisbee to knock them all down. The shalom we long for is that all would be truly right. And yet we know it's not. We know it's not. And so this peace, this promise of shalom, this coming of the kingdom of God so often to us seems, feels, is elusive. Yet the beatitude tells us that the peacemakers are the true sons of God. And as I was studying this text really hard for the last 16 hours, um, no, I was, I did, and I'd prepared in advance. I, I, I did feel a, a bit exposed here. It's kind of hard to make peace. <laughs> I mean, do you have anyone out there, and it's funny how Christmas can kind of bring this stuff up, that's sort of like wronged you or you feel like is wronged you? And you're like, I, I kind of walked three steps toward you. You've walked 1.2 toward me. So your turn to do more? I felt exposed by this question within the beatitude presented to me and to you. Am I a peacemaker? Because honestly, if I'm really honest, and I, if I'm really honest with my own heart, which is reflected so often in what I do or what I leave undone when it comes to reconciling and peacemaking and the hard, risky, challenging relational work of forgiveness. I am betrayed so often by my own actions. I don't really want peace. I want victory. I don't want peace. I want to win. In an argument, in a betrayal, I want to be vindicated. I want to know that I'm the one who's justified. 
You know, or at least that I, I, I've done the, you know, the least common denominator, the, the minimal amount to, to make strides and amends because, you know what, I've already been hurt and I don't want to be hurt again. So it's not just some power-hungry sense of vindication. It's also the fear and the risk and the scare of moving back toward a relationship that's been broken. Often I find myself looking at those who are peacemakers and mistaking them for people-pleasers. Peace looks weak. It doesn't look like Roman glory and swords and emperors and purple robes and, you know, pillars and pylons and sacrifices. It looks like a little wiggly baby in a dirty manger. And so often to me it looks weak. Or perhaps even more self-righteously, not just weak, but undeserved. Again, I'll go and try to make some peace with that person when that person, who I've already tried to make a little bit of peace with, puts in at least the tiniest smidge of effort toward me. I mean, how conditional is that? How ungrace and unmercy and unfaithfulness of the Father is that? Thanks be to God, I am not the Christ, and neither are you. So there's hope. We turn to God. I mean, God, really? Be a peacemaker with that person? Do you see what they did? You see what they said? You see what they did to me? How they hurt me? See how scary it is for me to walk back toward that and maybe be hurt again? To which God answers, yeah, I saw. And it's scary. And it might be painful. But again, the Father's heart is to be close to you <laughs> as a peacemaker for peacemakers. So what about you? Do you have peace? Do you make peace? Perhaps to put a sharper point on it, who comes to mind? Ooh, I don't like that question. Moving on. Who comes to mind? But a better question than who comes to mind is what stops you. That's what gets to the heart, right? That, that's what goes from the head to the heart. What, what stops you? Hmm. To all this, we might say, Jesus, help. Because we want to be blessed we want to be in and living with the reality of the kingdom as peacemakers who are known here in this place and in Santa Fe as the sons and daughters of God. We long for peace, for the blessing of God's kingdom, for true shalom, not partial, not half measure, not a slice of the pie, but the whole thing, a savior. Peace on earth. And I think in that sense, this beatitude shows us then at least three truths about why we long for peace and where it might be found. The first is we long for peace, but we long for real peace. Again, the, the deep kind. And so there's a warning here from Jeremiah chapter 6. You might be familiar with this scripture, Jeremiah 6, 14. The prophet Jeremiah, he had a pretty hard life as a pastor and as a prophet. People did not like what he said and they struggled to listen to his words because his words were a call to repent and turn from your unfaithfulness and believe. And so in chapter 6, he is declaring, as it were, words of judgment and consequences for their actions. He says, and this is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Just think about that, that image. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Now this brought to mind the words of 
uh, Amy Carmichael, who says the following, if I am content to heal a hurt just slightly, saying peace, peace, where there is no peace, if I forget the poignant word, let love be without dissimulation, and the blunt edge of truth, speaking not right things, but smooth things, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If there is any true thing about Jesus, real peace, it's that he doesn't come to heal our wounds lightly. Again, the context here is God's justice. Do you see any injustice in the world? Do you care about the injustice in the world that you see individually, systemically, all of the above? God cares about injustice. And so that's the context here, is God speaking a warning to his people. In the prophets in the Old Testament, you often see this cycle, judgment and restoration. But again, it's not because God is sitting up there wagging his finger, just getting ready to, you know, beat everybody with a stick. This is the Father's tender way of saying, please don't run into the street. Oh, and by the way, this is better. Let's do this. So it's an invitation for us to see this morning, to be honest, to not wear any masks, to consider the words of Jeremiah, that we wouldn't heal our wounds or the wounds of others lightly, that we wouldn't wear masks or hide behind false selves, in some, that we would be those who repent and believe in an ongoing cycle of faith. Because if I, if I might just say to myself, right, one finger at you, three fingers back at me, professional religious person here. I think in our churches, perhaps in my life, when it comes to peace and the healing of wounds too lightly, there's just way too much putting lipstick on a pig. Band-aids on flesh wounds. And so Jesus is really radical in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, understand the way that this worked for the Jews in their day, religiously. All right, you, you had to, you know, make some amends, perhaps go to the temple and make a sacrifice, mutter under your breath, I'm sorry, and then be done with it. Jesus tells them, later on in Matthew 5, that actually they shouldn't even come to the temple to worship. They should leave their gift at the altar and go and be reconciled and be a peacemaker. Then he ups the ante one more, frustrating you and me and the Jews of the day, you know, almost to the point of explosion where he says, it's not only that you are to love your friends and make peace with them, but go and be a peacemaker with your enemies. This these are the words of a person who does not heal wounds lightly. In fact, in these challenges to us and to the original hearers of the sermon, this was the opening of wounds. Okay, I'll, I'll forgive, I'll make peace. Meaning I'll probably forget about it and I'll feel good about whatever I did, even if I can remember it. Jesus says, no, leave your, don't even worship until you're reconciled. Oh, and by the way, not just people that are like you and look like you and agree with you and are, you know, on your side of the aisle, your enemies. You can imagine these original hearers thinking, wow, this just goes a little bit too far. And that's the point. Because it does go too far in the sense that it goes well beyond religion or well beyond the ability of any human being, even the most religiously observant human being like the Pharisees were in this day, to do what was being asked of them. Who is sufficient for these things? 
You mean I gotta be reconciled to everyone before I come to worship? You mean I even have to love my enemies? And yet for us, it's not a matter of pointing our finger to those people over there, but allowing the Spirit to convict us as well. We are often those who heal wounds lightly. Move on, pass over, forget, say peace, when in our hearts we know there is no peace. So we long for peace, and we long for real, heart-deep, true peace. The good news that is given to us at Christmas and today is that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He is not only the one who brings peace, but accomplishes peace and now sits at the right hand of God, praying for you, sending his spirit and giving that peace ongoing until someday he brings us home to the fullness of the peace we were promised. We've been meditating, haven't we, on Isaiah 9. Handel's Messiah. Some of you can hear the music in your heads right now. Unto us, a child is born. Jesus is our peace, a promised Savior. Now, that's an incredible piece of music and a wonderful scripture in Isaiah 9, but I do think it helps to know a little bit about the context here because Jesus is not promised by Isaiah into a time and place where everything is just hunky-dory for the Israelites. In fact, it would be a time in some ways kind of like ours. Wars and rumors of wars and geopolitical global powers, you know, fighting it out and scheming and kings and kingdoms rising and falling. Isaiah in chapter 9 is actually prophesying to those who are in the northern kingdom. And he starts off with giving them some bad news. You guys have been trying to be your own gods and live your own way and some consequences are coming. Some consequences are coming in the form of a nation called Assyria. And Assyria is going to wipe out the northern kingdom. But you have a chance to not be wiped out. And your chance to not be wiped out is to, to turn. To turn to God. To turn to the warrior. To turn to the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. The one who will come and win the battle. And so you can imagine, as the scroll of Isaiah is being read in temple and synagogue, people are getting excited and geared up, and here he comes, and then we hit that verse. <laughs> that verse that messes with you and messes with me and all of our expectations and presumptions about what God could do or should do because it's what we would do or we think we would do if we were in his place. That little verse that says, for unto us a child is born. A son is given. It's as if God is saying to the people that Isaiah prophesied to and to us, look, you want peace? You long for peace? Real peace? Okay. But it's not going to come in the form of chariots and horses and political packs and powers and intrigue. Unto you, a child is born. A son is given. A king and Isaiah says, he shall be called, and then gives us four names. You probably know the names well. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What you may not know, and, and I find out, found out as I continue to study this passage, is that these, in the ancient Near East, are sort of kingly titles endowed to a king coming of age. These are what we would call throne names. And they're not just, you know, picked out arbitrarily by Isaiah. They actually have a logical progression and a pattern to them. 
These are the throne names, the king titles, the ancient Near Eastern promises given to the child who will become a king and rule like David. A man after God's own heart who hears and listens to God and does what God has given him to do on earth for the people of God. So he's a wonderful counselor. And although we do get great counsel from Jesus through his word by the Spirit, this isn't in the context of Jesus being a really good therapist. Wonderful counselor means that, that this child will be a, one whose counsel of military strategy and the expansion of the kingdom is trustworthy. Almighty God, which means that the ruler will be sovereign, almighty, everlasting father, which means that he will provide royal care and loving guidance and protection and peace for the entire nation. Wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, and then the culmination of these throne names, this progression of the work of the child is that he will be the prince of peace. The nature of his rule and his reign, what will mark his kingdom, and therefore what should mark his subjects will be peace. Not ultimately his own glory, his own power, his own self-protection, or the use of force. No, this is the prince of peace, and he's going to do things differently. Again, Jeremiah says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. This prince of peace, to heal our wounds, doesn't heal them lightly, but instead, of course, take those wounds upon himself. Not glory, not power, not force, but instead the Prince of Peace accomplishes his ends through the cross. King Jesus brings us peace by having war waged on him. He brings us peace by standing in our place of war. He takes conflict on himself, our conflict, that he might provide for us comfort. And this quote from Tim Keller stood out to me on this subject at the time of Christmas. Consider this closely and humbly. There's really no other religion that says that God, the King, the Prince of Peace, has suffered. That God had to be himself courageous, that he knows what it is like to be abandoned by his friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and die. Christmas shows he knows what you're going through. When you talk to this king, he not only commands, but he understands. I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> the Prince of Peace. And it's in this way that Isaiah chapter 9 proceeds. We're told by Isaiah that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is what God is zealous for in you and in me. An upside down kingdom. We can't do it. We can't bring peace on earth by ourselves, with our own efforts, with our own merit, with any sort of religious motions or rules. None of those things can accomplish the peace that we so deeply long for, real peace. And so one has to stand in our place. Jesus, the Savior, is our peace. And if that's true, then, last point, uh, we are the sons of God and the daughters of God. We are the peacemakers called sons. We're in the family of God. We are adopted into God's family. It's the baptism 
Remember the baptism. This is how we're brought in, with nothing of our own righteousness or merits to claim, only God's gift to us in Jesus. And if that's true, then we are, we're sons. And wherever there might be peace around us, or lack of, or wherever wherever there might be a lack of peace within us, we can know who we most truly and deeply are, that the truest truth about you and me isn't all the stuff going on, but it's that we are sons and daughters of God. This idea of sonship is a cornerstone of the scriptures. Not just that those who are good or worthy or deserving of peace get to be in the family, and the rest are kept in time out outside the camp until they've you know, done sufficient penance, but that God, the ultimate peacemaker, actually sets his love and peace upon us to make us the peacemakers, sons and daughters that we so deeply long to be. So his heart for you is not that of a slave, but a son. And if that's true, that we are sons, then we actually have the motivation and the strength that we need to go out and be peacemakers. So we're not perfect, we're gonna fail. We're gonna be frustrated. We're gonna come along situations and betrayals and relationships and fear and power and all the rest. It's a normal part of our lives, but if we are sons and daughters of the living God, we have exactly what we need within us, the power of the Spirit to actually go out and bring shalom to this place. I just got to thinking, I mean... Can the church be different in that way? (laughs) What makes the church different? Oh, the church is filled with people that are a lot more moral than other people. Nope, because I know most of you. (laughs) I mean, you're not the worst, but definitely not the best. The church is filled with, you know, like like this, this is the thing. This is the power of God. This is where the power of God is at. That because Christ has been our peacemaker, according to God's will by the Spirit, we now, filled with the Holy Spirit, cannot be a place of, you know, perfect people who everybody knows are just hypocrites like them, but, but a place full of people who are consistently making peace with one another and with the broken and the needy folks in our city. That we can look in our city to places where there is no peace, and rather than be repelled and disgusted and fold our arms self-righteously and go, well, you should have tried harder or done better or whatever, we can actually move toward those places of peacelessness with the peace of Christ, with our hands and feet. It is risky, but man, if I didn't believe that because of Jesus, we couldn't be different in this way as a church, I would kind of wonder, what's the point? And what's the point of gathering? Sweet. It's a, it's a holy huddle where we you know, engage in song-filled confirmation bias. Way to go, us. No, it's so much more than that. God has made peace with us in Christ so that we might actually have peace with one another and go make it with the world. And it is risky, and it is scary, and it is hard. And those people that are coming to your mind right now that you're like, I've already tried, I want to try again. It's too much. But what would the scandal of the gospel that Jesus brought upon those hearers at the Sermon on the Mount look like? If we were to trust Jesus that he is with us, that the Father's heart is for us as we put those things into action. And that's why we know that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called 
sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you that, Jesus, you are the prince of peace, confounding all of our expectations. We expect judgment. We may expect religion. Perhaps we expect you to be satisfied with whatever peace we can bring as an offering. And you just, you turn the kingdom completely up on its head. And not only are we revealed and exposed by the very peace we long for, real deep peace, which as we meditate on it, shows us our lack of it. Not only are we exposed simultaneously because of your grace, we are covered. We're not slaves, but sons and daughters. Like the prodigal son, we, 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 we look down and see our hands and go, we, we've brought nothing here. And yet you come, you run out to us, you clothe us in your robe, you raise our heads... And you say, don't worry, if you brought nothing, I have everything. Come to the feast. So Jesus, I pray that would be real for us now. Prince of peace, wherever our hearts are troubled, wherever there is a lack of peace, in our own souls, in the world around us, in family and relationships, wherever, as far as the curse is found, Jesus, would you, our prince of peace, the child, the son given, would you... Would you come and bless us with a peace that transcends even what we can understand as we come to feast by faith on your real spiritual presence at this meal? Thank you, Lord, that when we are out in the cold, you invite us in. And not to sit and time out until we've done better, but right to the table to feast on what you and you alone can provide. We're so thankful you do. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.